Okay, we're back. We're back with another guest episode. This is uh, usually a lot more enjoyable than doing these on my own, mainly because I just, um, I don't know, I get tired of listening to myself, because, I don't know, only child, grew up alone constantly in my own head. Um, but today, we actually have a pretty cool guest, because we got Greg here, Greg being sort of my musical guru from when I was a teenager, <laughs> um, mostly through a lot of hip-hop, but really a lot of the sort of classics, the sort of canonical, uh, there's that word again, constantly talking about the canon, um, but we're going to be delving into that again on the, I don't want to say softer side, that's maybe not the right way to put it, but certainly some of the foundational things. Um, because I think it's important. We've talked a lot about sort of the progressive stuff. We've talked about things in the recent past. We've talked about metal at its most extreme, but I don't think we've really done a whole lot of work outside of talking about like Black Sabbath and briefly about Led Zeppelin, um, talking about where it all came from. Uh, so, Greg, I introduced you to three albums that we talked about on the last episode. I keep saying we, but it was just me. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> Um, we talked about on the last episode, and these were three albums that I believe to be foundational in the post-Sabbath era. Um, right. So, have you heard any of these before? Power Slave, Screaming for Vengeance, Heaven and Hell, have you heard these at all before? <laughs> no, uh, I have not heard a single song off of any of the three. <laughs> okay, got it. So, that maybe doesn't surprise me too much, because you are not really a metal guy, right? No, no. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of rock music, uh, classic rock, 60s rock, 70s rock, some 80s, you know, just all different eras, different types of uh, rock music. Um, I lean towards blues rock a lot, blues influenced rock, and um, I do like the bands that I listen to when they rock harder. <laughs> sure. I, I enjoy that sound, but I've never crossed over into all-out heavy metal so this is a different experience for sure <laughs> yeah yeah and and I think that it was kind of fortuitous that and and I did sort of plan this but I didn't really plan it to be more blues influenced I guess uh, I just picked three that were you know on the softer side of the kind of stuff that I usually mm -hmm. listen to because I know that it would be pointless to give you an album by like Campbell Corpse or something because you wouldn't have anything to say about it other than I don't <laughs> like it. Uh, <laughs> um, but I did land on at least like two of the three albums I gave you here. Um, I think are pretty bluesy, really, for mm. for the heavier side of rock. Um, yeah. Starting with with Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. Now you told me that you had never heard this, but that you seemed to anticipate it as something you might like, right? So. Um... A little bit of my history, uh, I'll just go over this real quick. Um, so, my history with these artists in particular. So, Black Sabbath, um, thanks to you, <laughs> I'm a fan of. <laughs> Hell yeah. But I only know um, Ozzy Black Sabbath. I know the first five or six albums pretty well. A few tracks off the last couple that he did with them. I've never heard a Black Sabbath song past Ozzy's initial departure in the late 70s. Got it. Um, other than that, the three artists you gave me, this could be interesting. I want to see, show you just how cursory my knowledge is of this. Sure. Of the other three artists, so it's Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and we'll say uh, Dio, the guy, since I already know Black Sabbath sure. from before that. Sure. I only knew one song 
by each of those three artists. Okay, so you knew one Maiden song, one Sabbath song with Dio, and one Priest song. Mm, well, Or are yeah. you saying only one? One Dio song, period. Okay, which Dio song was it? Holy Diver. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to know one, that's that's not a bad one to know. Any um, guess at what my Iron Maiden song would be? Uh, is I mean, I guess the, the biggest one from them is probably Number of the Beast, but... You know, I guess it could be the Trooper. It could. No, it be... is off that album though. Okay, hit me. Run for the hills. Run for the hills. That's a, well. That's also a banger. I mean, like it's not like <laughs> yeah. you're. You know, that's that's a fucking banger. So. And this is probably just from like metal shows that you know related lists or things that I've watched on on YouTube or on VH1 back in the day. So. These are the songs they played when they talked about these artists. That makes sense, because, like, you know... And these, I only knew one Judas Priest song, too. Uh, I'm going to guess it's Breaking the Law. Yep. 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 The, the canonical very Breaking cursory, the Law. <laughs> very cursory uh, knowledge on... And, and it doesn't surprise me that you would know those, because, you know, I know that you keep up with sort of the, again, the canon, sort of, like, what people consider to be essential, and, and I know that those songs and these bands cross over into the more like classic rock like mainstream rock i guess i'll also say this so i i love watching shows like the ones i just mentioned documentaries that kind of thing on musicians and music heavy metal is not something i've ever gravitated towards obviously um but it's one of those genres that i know very little about but i have a lot of respect for it sure based on what i know about it um, so it's, I was very interested in hearing what you gave me because I do know of these groups. I could tell you the names of their lead singers, maybe a couple albums, even if I haven't heard them, I kind of understand that there's a legacy there. There's a, there's, you know, this is very influential and in their the case, metal history. These three cases, extraordinary musicianship. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I knew I wasn't going to hate it or anything like that because if nothing else, I would respect it as a genre that's kind of contained within itself more or less and plays by its rules because it doesn't care. Yeah. If, you, if you're not in for it, then you're not in for it. I mean, I think I've mentioned it before, but when there's no real uh, expectation of mainstream crossover appeal and that kind of financial return, mm -hmm. then you do kind of feel a little bit more free. Like, fuck it, we're not going to make any money anyway, so right. we may as well make so all you the know, money. So you know they're doing what they want to do. Exactly. <laughs> and that's very cool to me. So, Yeah, so Heaven and Hell. Like, I know that y you texted me on a weeknight at about 10.30 p.m. <laughs> I, was a, I was literally getting into bed, checking my phone before I went to sleep, nice. and all of a sudden I get a text completely out of the blue Heaven and Hell kicks ass, and I it made me smile. I went to bed with a smile that night, knowing <laughs> that you you had this reaction. So tell me about it. What, what happened when you listened to this? What were you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I was just I was very interested in this one because, like I said, I do like a lot of seventy Sabbath, and I know that it is the same musicians, just with a different uh, frontman, and <laughs> my initial reaction is this is definitely different than what I've heard from them before, mm -hmm. but still very believable that it's the same musicians. Like I, I could tell it was the same band and it really goes, uh, it speaks to the, the idea that the front man really, how much it changed, mm -hmm. how much the band changed in and of itself, how they're playing, how they're writing based on a totally different <laughs> type of lead singer. This guy could not have been further from Ozzy. No. 
Uh, no, in a lot of ways, because Dio at this point had been in multiple bands. Like he was in his like mid thirties, I think, when this album came out or right. something like that. Yeah, like, he's, he's he'd been around. Veteran. That being said, uh, to replace Ozzy, I enjoyed him a lot. I know um, I read that he was writing the lyrics, so a lot of the lyrical content's different because now you have a different lyricist. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a Butler that. Yeah, Geezer. The main. Geezer was writing a lot of the songs, lyricist, um, yeah. and you can tell that. Dio, like I think I think I said in the last episode that this really feels like a Dio album. Mm -hmm. Like if you'd listen to Rainbow or Dio's solo stuff, this feels, pro in my opinion, more like a Dio album than it does like an old Sabbath right. album. I I can imagine so. I mean, not that I know his music from before, but I mean, I can definitely see that the the influence is. Uh, I mean, right from the start, it's like I said. I I can believe it's the same musicians. There's a lot of solos and whatnot I'm like yeah that's that's iomi I, right, <laughs> it definitely yeah. is them but going a very different direction um and one that it was just a, it was a pleasant surprise i like the energy all the way throughout um this is a very energetic album yeah compared it, to their it older never stuff. really loses momentum there were no songs that i was kind of like okay whatever it just kind of really that's kind of true for all three of these but they just have an incredible momentum throughout Absolutely. And and this was one that I'm I'm glad that we got to, to put this one on here because, you know, especially tying it into the stuff that you had me listen to, you know, I, I, th I think that it works out moving backwards like this chronologically, like going into these, these 80s albums, moving back into the older stuff that you gave me. Um, because on this one, especially, you can feel the roots that especially Dio had with the sort of quote-unquote classic rock. Sure. If Sabbath is a bridge, then I think mm -hmm. he jumps over that bridge back into the sort of theatricality and sure. the sort of like uh, fantastical imagery and stuff mm -hmm. of the, the stuff you gave me. Um, right. And I think you got the same thing on this other album, um, Power Slave, Iron right. Maiden. You know, that's Maiden is so over-the-top theatrical, you know, and I want to see if you kind of got the same vibe because I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking a lot about that as as far as that and uh, as far as Iron Maiden and some of the ones I gave you as well. I mean, that was definitely something that I kept in mind when I went back and looked for picks to give you. Was I mean the theatricality that yeah yeah absolutely but, yeah yeah. So you know, Power Slave, Iron Maiden generally, you know, I think that they are more metal i guess as far as like the the percentage of blues and metal and classic rock i feel like they they're the highest metal content of these three that i gave you mm -hmm. um so how did this stack up in your opinion to priest and and sabbath which i expected you to like those more but i don't know how you felt about <laughs> about this so I haven't I haven't uh, messaged you or anything about the Iron Maiden album. Right. I, ke I kept that one close to my chest because I think you'll be a little surprised. It was definitely my favorite of the three. Really? Yes. Okay, that's that's again <laughs> very surprising. Yeah. Um, but you know, tell me why? Because I mean, I know that a lot of these conversations begin and end talking about. Uh, the musicianship. I was just going to say Bruce Dickinson's voice because I think that you could record a long podcast just about how amazing his voice is. But sure. the musicianship on their albums is always super tight, super precise, um, and really just kind of foundational for everything that came after them or their contemporaries. You know, you can hear it in thrash music a lot. 
Sure. Um, so I don't know. Did you? Uh, what was that part of it for you? Well, um, I didn't know what to expect from this one. Um, basically, for the reasons you just said, the kind of more pure metal. Um, 1984. You know, Heaven and Hell's 1980. You're still you're right coming off the 70s. So, like you said, it, it ties into a lot of what came before it, maybe a little bit more clearly than than something by the time you get to the mid 80s. I really didn't know uh, what to expect, but like I said about Sabbath, this was a this was a great surprise. It just had a great energy throughout. Of course, most of these uh, uh, the first couple of listens I did of them, I'm really just taking it in what it sounds like, what the musicians are doing, what does the front man sound like, and then I kind of would go back to the lyrics on a little later uh, um, in later listens, and uh, yeah, I just. I mean, all of this, I, I thought it was very interesting what he was singing about. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote some things down here. So like Ace is High is about aerial battles yep. and, and war. And um, that continues into two minutes to midnight where he's talking about like a doomsday machine. <laughs> By the way, like one of the better like two piece parts of an album, those songs being so classic in their discography, but also... What a fucking two-piece that is, man. Like, just yeah. two absolute classics. I love that. Yeah. that. Talking to energy, kicking your album off like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, you know, going past, I know there's an instrumental, but then you get a couple tracks where he's talking about sword fighting, <laughs> sword course. play. Um, taken to very big extremes uh, in a fantasy sense. I know he's very big in offensing. That is actually something I knew about Bruce Dickinson. That is true. Prior to even listening to this, I just kind of knew that. But um, that definitely shows up in the lyrics a lot. Um, Flash of the Blade might be my favorite song out of all of these three albums. Pulling a deep cut, man. If is that a deep cut? Yeah. Okay. That's not the. That's not a part of the. From what I understand, and like Maiden is actually my least favorite of these three bands, mm -hmm. uh, which says a lot because I like them. You yeah, know, I like them a lot, but. Uh, of the three, I think they might be the least dynamic. I think they've kind of been the same band pretty much since you. the beginning. Well, not since the beginning. Since Bruce Dickinson came on, they've pretty much been the same band. Yeah. Uh, so I would say there's like two, maybe three albums of theirs that you need to hear, and this is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, like they're... From what I understand, that is indeed a bit of a deep cut. So okay. that, that makes me excited that you, you picked that one out. That's a I'm, really cool twist. I mean, yeah. Um, Duelists, which I... You know, I'm a film guy, so I know that's kind of alludes to the Ridley Scott film, uh, More Swords. <laughs> More Swords. Um, <laughs> back in the village, um, we're talking, you know, we're getting into the government. And is, is this the one that I, I'm thinking of that had like, they're talking about like brainwashing and then. It might be, uh, I and, think, and that doesn't surprise me because that that is. I actually, wrote down: "There's a fox among the chickens and a killer in the hounds." I was like, "That's a badass." It is a badass line, dude. I'm so like Maiden is Maiden and Priest really are like the ultimate like, you know, uh, do, like Dungeons and Dragons kid sitting mm -hmm. in the back of the class oh, yeah. doodling in their notebook. Sure, like this is this is definitely the era of the satanic panic of the. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, I was a really little kid at the time so but i i only kind of know about it in retrospect but yeah i mean definitely oh yeah and and that's what i was kind of interested about when i was looking at the lyrics while there is a lot of imagery that would suggest these things i mean your, your album's called heaven and hell for instance and sure. 
you know, there's a you know, Lady Evil and, and these kind of words. Neon Knights. When you look at when you look at the lyrics to Lady Evil, it's like, is is it is he talking literally of an evil woman or is he just talking about a bitch? Like, like <laughs> is, this is just a a haggard woman that just hates people and she's gonna ruin you or you know, whatever. And I'm like, you know, it, it kinda walks that line. Is is it more metaphor to them or or whatnot? Um, you, you, you do have to question, given how fantastical everything absolutely, is. Absolutely. Because it's, it's all heightened in that sense. So Heightened is a good word for all uh, of these albums. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Of course, then the Power Slave, you get the Egyptian motif, which, um, you know, is the album cover, so that was cool. Eddie on the cover being a sphinx. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. I like it. Um, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. This was awesome. Like, yes. I, this was a ride. The whole album was, but this is where you get a lot more um, dynamics as far as um, they're going fast and loud one minute, they're going soft and quiet. I know there's a, I'm not familiar with the poem, but I know he recites some lines from a poem. And, but I just like that it's multi section. That's something I'll talk about in like Queen, for instance. Oh, yeah. Um, multi-sections to it that it's 13 14 minutes something like that it doesn't really feel like it to me no i mean and it takes a it takes a special kind of musician to pull that off and yeah. i think that it is telling how how well embraced they are being from that era and they still had currency with fans of like thrash because this is 84 mm -hmm. so this is literally as thrash is being born taken off and you know i talked a lot about how thrash in a lot of ways was sort of a reaction to uh bands like maiden or bands like queen you know if, of like yeah you had these heavy parts but the thrash artists were like we're gonna strip this down and we're going to keep this tight, and we're going to keep this intense, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I talk a lot about how influences... Um, it, it being an influence is basically where you're providing this big uh, spread, right? And then the people who come after you pick out the parts they think are right. important. Sure. Um, and it tells me something that Maiden is still very influential and very well-loved, even when they have the theatricality that a lot of bands were kind of moving away from, you know? Bands right. that were still fantastical lyrically, but, like... Their music sure. was much more straightforward than this. Right. Um, so yeah, hell of a hell of a bunch of musicians. I'm I don't. To. I don't know. Um, I don't know how that would translate for me if I went from this to thrash. Um, I think some of those elements that are present in Iron Maiden and stuff help me along in a genre I'm unfamiliar with. That makes um, sense. I love. I mean, there's great melodies all over these songs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, his singing is incredible but it's also great melodies i mean these are catchy songs for, absolutely for what they are they're absolutely catchy songs um which you know goes a long way for me um but it's interesting um if i can kind of detour for a second because i'm a huge hip-hop person um you mentioned that briefly earlier you are wearing an easy e-shirt i'm wearing an easy e-shirt i'm i'm just large into hip-hop culture and history and it was kind of going through the same thing at the time because when you look at early uh, 80s rap it was a lot of leather suits that were real flashy and guys dressed up like cowboys and it was <laughs> i mean they damn near looked like the village people yeah they were rapping and then you had people like run dmc come in in 84 <laughs> yep and strip all that back they're like we're gonna rap like you're rapping but we're just gonna wear black <laughs> right we're gonna have it's all stripped back you know so it's kind of 
the same kind of answer to yeah, absolutely. the flashier, almost more disco-fied uh, early days of rap recording. Yeah, and I think the 80s, you know, I've been thinking in terms of, like, the ebb and flow of how these genres move. And, you know, hip-hop became a commercial sensation, the likes of which metal never was. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sure. But it really does follow, in some ways, that same sort of ebb and flow, that same sort of wave where the 80s, like you said, for both uh, genres, was about looking at this incredibly flamboyant past mm-hmm. and saying, well, what's important here? What can we cut away, you know? Sure. And you still had acts like Maiden that were like, no, we're going to hold on to some of this crazy stuff that, you know, Queen and David Bowie and, and all these bands are doing, mm-hmm. but we're going to uh, heighten it in a way, you know? Right. Uh, so Make it their own. <laughs> absolutely. And, and I think that that... That is also interesting with the next album that I was going to talk about was uh, Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest. Now, I could have picked a lot of different albums for Priest because they are, uh, you know, of their era, probably my favorite band. Um, that new wave of British heavy metal, like late 70s going into the early 80s, those kinds of bands. They're right. almost certainly my favorite of that era um, okay. because to me, they and, they and Maiden are kind of like two sides of the coin in a way. Uh, I've jokingly referred it to, you know, if you're horny, you listen to Judas Priest. If you're a Dungeons and Dragons kid who doesn't talk to girls, you probably listen to Maiden. Um, but gotcha. <laughs> sonically, that translates to Priest being more bluesy, uh, yeah. clearly more blues influenced in the riffs. Um, and, right. is, and some of the swagger in the vocals sure. uh, is a little more libidinal, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you kind of get that? Because I was, I, yeah. I expected this actually to be your favorite because of the blues influence. And it was my least favorite. Really? <laughs> Whoa. Not not by a lot. That's, that's no slam on the album at all. I really enjoyed it as well. Um, it, I mean, it could still grow on me to a point, you know, I, I expectations could have played into it i probably expected the least out of iron maiden so maybe i was just more pleasantly surprised of what i got out of it um the priest one seemed a lot more straightforward um kind of what you were saying in in the musical sense and the lyrical sense i mean there's there's a lot about um he's tortured by love in a lot of these songs yes or submissive to lust. It, it sometimes it's hard to tell like how much he's wanting to like take these chains off. <laughs> like I'm being tortured by your love. Right. And then some of them almost kind of lean into it, like pain and pleasure. <laughs> it's like well, it's, yeah, there's pain, but I'm enjoying it too. <laughs> like, well, it does yeah. say a lot that they they popularize the look of you know tough guy leather and chains and stuff. Right. And really. Uh, you know, they interviewed Halford about it later on, and he said, no, it's just because I was a closeted gay man, and I would go to these, like, leather bars and just right. pick up that look, and people didn't realize it at the time, but that was just part of gay culture and, and right. not supposed to be tough guy stuff. Um, and so you, <laughs> can, you can see the, the S&M stuff in their lyrics, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of, it, it started off different. I definitely like the opener, you know, an electric eye. Um, Electric Eye is my favorite song. Maybe my favorite metal song of the decade. Really? I, d- I cannot get that that melody out of my head. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. that sort of swinging, I, swagger. This was definitely one of the highlights. Um, you know, here he's talking like, a, it's like a Big Brother song. 
Yeah, and it it's you know I th I'm glad that you mentioned that with Maiden talking about sort of mind control and stuff mm -hmm. like that, and with Priest talking about you know being watched all the time because that's not new for them. Mm -hmm. You know, both bands have similar sort of almost paranoia in their lyrics. And I always wondered, is, is that just sort of sociopolitical? Like, Britain was becoming a lot more of a police state, I guess. You know, the mm -hmm. Thatcher years was a big crackdown on a lot of things. Right. Uh, and these were more probably left-leaning individuals, um, just judging from their lyrics and some of the things they've said over the years. Yeah. So I think that might have something to do with it. Sure. Um, but it is... It is it is interesting that you pick that out too, because every time I listen to Priest and throughout their whole career, I pick that up. That sort of paranoia. Um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and certainly again, the S and M stuff keeps coming up if you know what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, <laughs> yeah, very cool. Um, I even actually wrote after the uh, after the couple tracks, you know, take these chains, pain and pleasure. I put. Then we get to the title track where we're back to paranoia. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I actually wrote that down. Absolutely. And those that's that's sort of their that's their trademark, you know. Um, their trademark is is and it's funny that you mentioned this, this sort of submissiveness to the pain of of the torturous love and stuff. I don't know who Halford was thinking of all these years. There must have been this incredible man out there to get, <laughs> to get him feeling somebody this hurt way. him. They, they must have, but you know, it, it, it contrasts with their sound. I think though, because yeah. they are in many ways seen as like one of the original power metal bands. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of shaking your fist, sort of rock hard, soaring vocals kind of thing. Uh, but then you listen to the lyrics, and it it certainly doesn't feel powerful, right? Uh, it feels it's interesting. Yeah, it's... It, it feels like they're they're trying to regain a power rather than, mm -hmm. than assert their power, and I, I didn't put that together until you said that. So thank you. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So it... my question on these, particularly the Judas and the Maiden, I, I kind of know where Sabbath comes from, but for all three, more or less, like why you already talked about why this era, why you picked this era for me. Um, and kind of why you picked the bands, which was one of my questions, but I'm curious a little bit more as somebody who now knows these albums to some extent to, I've heard them probably five times in the last week and know no other albums by them. Like, what is it about these albums in particular? Are they considered, did you pick them? Are they considered the band's best album, most accomplished album? Are they favorites of yours? Where does Power Slave fit into the overall Iron Maiden story? I think that these are, in many ways, sort of the perfect representations of who these bands are. I think this is where the bands, you know, you could argue they did, didn't hit their peak, quote-unquote. Like, I don't think Heaven and Hell is the best Black Sabbath album. You know, I think the best albums from Sabbath were during the Aussie years. Mm -hmm. Um but I do think that you could make a clear argument for Screaming for Vengeance being the best Priest album. I don't know if I would make that argument. I think that British Steel might be. So you kind of went more definitive. Like yeah. It's kind of the most defining Yeah, because I think album. that... And it's the same thing with Maiden, where I think their best album is probably Number of the Beast. Probably. Um, but I think that Power Slave had a real tightness to it. It was them being super confident of, like, this is what we sound like. 
you know, they were really staking their flag of yeah. like, we know who we are, we know what we want to do, this is who we are. And I think all well, three that, bands yeah. had that confidence on these That bands. comes across because, I mean, damn. You know, I know I talked about Bruce Dickinson, but I mean, the whole band. I know. <laughs> it's just every part of, of this. Um, uh, is, is something that, that was also on my mind when I picked my picks. Um, so I'll get a little bit more into that later. But yeah, the musicianship, the virtuosity. I mean, you could tell that these are all incredibly skilled musicians mm -hmm. who are composing together. Or I don't know who writes the song solely or whatever, but you can hear that they're bringing their parts all together. Absolutely. Very specifically. It's very composed. It's yeah, and, and I think that you, you kind of nailed it there as to why I picked them. Because they, this was when the bands were um, confident and comfortable with each other in a way that I don't know if they were before and maybe sort of lost some of that since then. Um, just from familiarity, eventually, you know, you kind of... It's interesting because I, I did read that, um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first Iron Maiden album to have the same lineup from the previous album. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm pretty sure right. that's what I read. So yeah, they had a they had a pretty strong core. <laughs> Is this um, their third with Dickinson? I think so. Yeah, I think it was Number of the Beast, then Peace of Mind, and then this, um, which also says something for me. A lot of the times with heavier music, the third album is usually the one that you get from the band that's like super secure in who they are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think of your uh, even in this era, you're like Slayers. Megadeth, Metallica, the you know the big thrash bands, you kind of had the same thing, um, mm -hmm. of like the third album with that unit being the cohesive one where everybody kind of like gels together like that, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, mean, I I could give seventies rock uh, examples of the same thing. It's yeah, find themselves on the third album. Yeah, exactly. So, like that. so yeah, that's that's what these were. That's that's why I think these are so important is because they really, really, really did hit their stride. Um, even with Heaven and Hell, which again, I don't think is their best album, but it is, in my opinion, maybe their tightest album. It's incredibly tight. And I mean, they're a band for, for the, some of their earlier stuff in Ozzy at times could kind of feel kind of rough and loose, I mean, mm -hmm. they, but they're always tight musicians. I mean, this is Heaven and Hell is obviously made by a group of musicians who, despite the fact that they're going in a different direction musically, are all very familiar with each other. I mean, th oh, yeah. these guys have definitely played for a while before. Oh yeah, and, and I know this is far from being the first Judas Priest album. This is like yeah, five or six, <laughs> something yeah. like that. I don't know. But. Priest had been around for a long time actually, right. and they were basically just a classic rock band up until Brit British Steel. That was when they truly became a metal band. Was in 1980, but they had already had multiple albums going into this. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess that can bring us into some of your picks, um, you know, and this was interesting because I'm familiar with everything that you picked out to an extent um, because I grew up on classic rock radio. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of these bands, not new to me, um, right. but in a way, kind of was because a lot of what you picked was not the stuff from that band that I really knew. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we can start with Queen 2, right? Like, I'd heard, of course, everybody's heard a ton of Queen songs over the years. Sure. They are a foundational rock band. Right. Um, but Queen 2, for whatever reason, is not one that I had really delved into. Yeah. Uh, they have one hit 
hit, so-called hit off the album. Yeah, I noticed uh, that's that. That's on a Greatest Hits album. I noticed and, that. Yeah, and that's not even generally brought up as one of the all-time classic Queen singles. You know. Yeah, so so tell me, and, and this is what I was thinking of when I was listening to these. For the most part, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't sure why you picked them. And I trust that you will take me there. But when I was listening to it, I was like, I just don't hear a lot of no. a lot of metal here. But I do hear little components here or there. Like how yeah. we were talking, like how I mentioned, you know, an influence is just where you provide a big spread of things and then right. people pick something. I was actually just about to bring that back up that you said that. Because um, some of these, you know, are considered proto-metal in a way not necessarily every track but there are components to it and the way i picked them and i'll start it i'll go chronological okay hit me. because there is kind of a a story to how i got from point a to point b i certainly don't expect anybody who like the most classic metal they know is power slave and screaming for vengeance to then go hear cream's wheels of fire and go this is the exact same thing. This right. Is, it's certainly not. Um, but just these kind of, def they're not definitive to me per se, if I was to just do like a podcast on classic rock, but to, to kind of lead the way to what you gave me, um, here's why I picked these. <laughs> so I'll start with Cream, Wheels of Fire, 1968. This is their third album. Um, There's that third album again. The third album. <laughs> oh, by the oh. way, uh, I did just check the discography for Judas Priest. This was their third real metal album. Their third oh, album okay. of the 80s was Screaming for Vengeance. So it does gotcha. kind of fit that. They basically were a new band in 1980. I see. So yes, third album. Interesting. Again. So keep going. No, I mean, arguably, uh, Cream's second album is probably considered their best. But um, Wheels of Fire is their third. Uh, it is a double album. The first album is uh, Studio, and I listened through it, and I was like, I, I can't make a strong case for this. But I did pick the second uh, record, which is Live. It's four live cuts, um, and I, I just wanted to hone in on that record. Um, so this is coming sort of in the final wave of the British Invasion, so just a Brief history on the British Invasion, um, you had blues music in America that, you know, black people made, black people loved, uh, a few white people heard it, made Elvis, <laughs> made, you know, made it popular, and a lot of white America, this is the 1950s, uh, a lot of white America didn't know where that music was coming from. Right. They just knew Elvis, or they just knew Buddy Holly, or whatever. And the British music, the British teenagers, excuse me, uh, at the time, who are also getting into Elvis and also getting into this big rock and roll boom, uh, were more um, seeking and like, where did this come from? And they were the ones who were discovering Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, you know, uh, Blind Willie, you know, all these different Sun House, whoever, um, John Lee Hooker, and they were recording the songs. So when the British Invasion, when the Beatles came over and they brought all these British bands with them, they were all playing a lot of uh, these artists' songs and introducing them to white America. As direct covers. As direct covers. Yeah. Um, which, 
you know, a lot of them were. I mean, Hound Dog by Elvis Presley's by Big Mama Thornton. You know, it's right. a cover. Um, but nobody knew who Big Mama Thornton was at the time. So in the 60s, you get this thing where a lot of American audiences and British audiences are learning about American blues music and what you can build off of that through British musicians. So you get Clapped in the Stones, the Kinks, the Animals, them, uh, the Who, you know, all these bands that were very much inspired by that. And throughout the years of 63, 64, when it really first started taking off in America, to where you get to Cream in 1966. So Eric Clapton, who I'm a big fan of in the 60s, <laughs> And yeah. almost not at all since. Yeah, I would say his his, his, his solo career is, I don't like. It's no. got some highlights here and there, mostly in the seventies. That he's turned into a fucking weirdo. He has turned yeah. It, like, <laughs> it's an odd late in life turn for him. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> but when he was still the guitarist in bands he put together, that was where he shined. He had already been in the Yardbirds, left them because they were getting too poppy getting away from the blues. He's a purist. <laughs> um, goes on to make John Mayles Blues Breakers, one album with them, with the rhythm section from Fleetwood Mac and all that. Legendary album, Clapton is God. That's when all that happened. And he goes from that and he forms Cream, which is considered the first super group, with Jack Bruce as bassist, Ginger Baker on drums. And the reason this is considered the first super group is because what you're getting here, for one of the first times, and, and this is... You know, a year before Jimi Hendrix Experience comes out, and, and you know, this is a very early version of a, of a rock group where each person could arguably be the best at what they do mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, I can and, and people still argue that, that is Eric Clapton one of the great guitarists, top ten at least, whatever. You know, a lot of people will argue that. Jack Bruce is very well respected. Ginger Baker's always brought up in the great classic rock drummers. Um, so you get that idea coming together for one of the first times uh, where it's deliberate that these guys are that good. Um, I kind of considered the, out, the cream and the likes of the time, uh, especially as a live act, uh, going back to Wheels of Fire, 1968, their third album, as I said. Now, um, what I'm hearing in this, the aspects that I picked out of this, um, they took that blues format, that that the, like a building block, that, that was their foundation, and they're building on it through these few years from like 64 to 68. And what they're bringing to it is they're giving it more volume. Yeah. They're making definitely. it louder. <laughs> they're making it faster. There's a lot of examples of these British bands um, from the 60s. If you listen to Muddy Waters, I just want to make, love to you and then listen to the stones cover it's twice as fast yeah i mean they're going off the rails uh brian jones or make one of them's wailing on the harmonica i mean it feels like they could break down at any second for a 1964 recording yeah you know so it's very fast um well i'll get into that song in a minute um they're extending the length we're now definitely going past the idea that oh to get on radio you have to have three three and a half minutes at the most we don't care about that. We can jam for 30 minutes if we want. Yeah. Whether it's good or not, we, we can do that. So they're they're expanding the length. And then once again, the aspect was virtuosity. These incredible musicians that become very tight playing together. Now the difference in that uh, on this 
Cream album versus, say, Iron Maiden or Judas Priest is when they take these songs, some of which they do as studio versions, and I'm, I'm kind of more a studio fan of Cream, 20, 30-minute jams can get exhausted. Get wearing on me. There's a 15-minute drum solo on this thing that's... It's what tough. A, what a <laughs> 60s thing to do. It is. It's a very <laughs> 60s thing to do. And you can listen to it from a technical standpoint and be like, he's tearing that up. I'm sure it was fun to play. Sure. <laughs> Probably was fun to watch if you were there. Um, but it's not something I'm going to go back to a lot. Uh, so they're jamming, if you will. Um, one of the uh, Another one of these songs is like 16 minutes long. And you get the verses and the courses up front and on the back end. And it's like 10 minutes of jamming in between. But their form is more jazz where they're working within a, a framework, but each instrument is improvising, essentially. Yeah, I mean, Eric free Clapton to explore. Is, yeah, Eric Clapton is just playing solos. Jack Bruce is going off on the bass. This is not pre-written, and then they eventually go back to it. So it's that long form of virtuosic playing that I connect the two. However, when you get to the at least the metal that you gave me, it's much more composed. This is not, I, I, I don't know, I, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, if you see one of these groups live, I imagine the songs are going to sound pretty close to the album versions. From what I've seen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't see as much uh, experimentation. Now, if you've got a guitar solo in there, they might switch up the guitar right. solo. Um, and a lot of these I'm hearing like no. dual guitar parts and stuff like that, so it's very composed. So that's that's the big difference is Cream is doing this idea of more jazz type um exploring your instruments together mm -hmm. <laughs> and and doing a good job of that if that's your thing um versus what you gave me which is which is a lot more put together and planned out and but no less virtuosic in its instrumentation yes and and <clears throat> i've mentioned it before with with early sabbath you know their first few albums especially the first two um, you hear the same thing there. You you hear that mm -hmm. freewheeling kind of oh, just okay. you know like if you listen to the first and the second Sabbath albums, there's a lot of that. Um, but again, tapers down, you sure. know. And I think that that is a that might actually be a straight line because you know the the Sabbath guys were listening to like Cream and stuff like that. Like they oh, absolutely they yeah. knew that they knew this stuff very well, and you can hear them take that influence in their first two albums and slowly narrow down into right. work it into their own thing yeah and you get down into the what they would probably view as the most important parts by the time 1980 comes around and they have heaven and hell so yeah sure. I absolutely yeah um so yeah those those are my main aspects uh the the four tracks just fyi they were picked um side three <laughs> since this is a double album side three is uh, two blues covers that were meant to show off Eric Clapton as a guitarist. You've got Crossroads, which he's singing as well. A banger. It is a banger. Um, once again, played way faster, louder, oh, yeah. electric, <laughs> uh, compared to the Robert Johnson original from 1937 or 38, whenever that came about. Um, it's myth-making, because that is the myth-making Robert Johnson song. I went down to the Crossroads. Of course, you know, Robert Johnson went to the crossroads, sold a soul to the devil to play the guitar. Very so, metal. Very metal. Uh, you know, very deliberate pick to showcase uh, Eric Clapton. Yeah, very metal indeed. Uh, Spoonful is another one. Willie Dixon wrote it. Howlin' Wolf. 
classic, classic blues song. Oh, yeah. Uh, they turned it into a 16-minute jam. <laughs> uh, I like the uh, six-minute album version from Disraeli Gears. Sure. Um, on side four, you got Train Time, which is showing off uh, bassist Jack Bruce, but not so much the bass. It's more about his vocals and his harmonica playing. Mm -hmm. Harmonica, incidentally, is my favorite instrument. But even this is like seven. Blowing my mind every single seven. time I talk to you. Oh yeah, I'm a Dylan guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good I, point. A lot of a lot of guys I love are, are accomplished on the harmonica. Um, it it goes on seven minutes. It's whatever. And then you got the Ginger Baker Showcase and Toad, which is the fifteen minute drum solo that everyone asked for. <laughs> but Christ. yeah, like you said, it's very sixties of the time. Um, it would go into the seventies, but you know, by the time you're getting a seventies rock, you are getting acts like Black Sabbath, even Zeppelin to an extent, though they could certainly ex <laughs> you know, play for a while too. Oh yeah. Uh, when they played live, but you know, you're getting things more streamlined. You're getting more prog rock, which is more composed. And I, I think that probably leads to the metal style of composition. Yeah. Probably a little bit more, but I thought that was an interesting stepping stone, kind of a bridge album and era from the blues that really rock and roll is built on it is not the only one but one of the main building blocks of rock and roll no matter what type of rock and roll you're playing absolutely that's where it comes from um into the middle of the 80s this is a very interesting almost like to me a point on the timeline that you can point and say okay here's a point where it's being turned up a lot yeah <laughs> you know in, in a lot of different ways and and you know i think that it's really clicking with me now. You know, again, I, a lot of times I was wondering, like, why did you pick this one? But it really does click with me when you talk about the supergroup nature of Cream mm -hmm. uh, and how live performance was so important in that era. You mentioned Sabbath and Zeppelin. Zeppelin, I was introduced to them through their live performances, which were yeah. interesting, crushingly heavy. <laughs> you know, um, like the Immigrant Song Live was brutally heavy. Sure. Um, but it really, that, that musicianship, that... that almost like competitive spirit of like you had Hendrix and you had Clapton and you had all these like budding guitar heroes um, and they all kind of pushed each other whether they were intentionally thinking about it or not there was kind of a competitive Absolutely. nature and it, and really now like I'm a big death metal fan and death metal actually is where you get a lot of mu musical virtuosity mm -hmm. um, you know, you see, like, on YouTube, you'll see these jazz musicians or stuff, they actually tried to play death metal, and they were like, I literally got exhausted before I could finish the song. Yeah. Like, I literally can't physically play it because it's so demanding. It's a Herculean task it to, is. to play this music. It yeah. is brutally difficult, and it, it takes an incredible musician, and mm -hmm. I, I talked about it on the Thrash episode, that a lot of this came from them just pushing each other, like, mm -hmm. oh, I can play faster, I can play heavier, you know, and I think that you do get that in the late 60s, too. So this is the perfect lead-in to where I was going next. Hell yeah. Um, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Um, I picked two songs, uh, one by The Who and one by The Beatles, and this is just more for me, you know, I find this a funny story. Um... So the Who were definitely a part of that, uh, the British invasion uh, that the Beatles kicked off for us. And uh, they were a bit more definitively Brit British sounding throughout their time yeah. uh, than the Beatles would be. Um, they were very influenced by American music as well, but definitely kept 
like the kinks as well. They definitely kept a very Britishness about it throughout, um, as Bowie would. Um, Without even defining Britishness, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like, the Rolling Stones, I mean, you can tell they're British. He sings with a Cockney accent. Sure. But the music is pure Chicago blues. Absolutely. <laughs> um, they listen to a lot of James Brown. That's very sure. American, yeah. And, and watched a lot of James Brown. <laughs> a, From the sidelines, terrified where, that they have to follow him up. Yeah. Where, where you get Mick uh, flailing all over the stage. Uh, one of the places you get that. Um, so why I say that's a great transition. Now I picked Boris the Spider for a couple reasons. Bizarre song. The uh, Were you familiar with it? No. You never heard this song before? No, I have not. Okay. I was I was very confused about what I was hearing. It's very bizarre. It's uh it's considered one of the early like horror songs. <laughs> yeah. Um about a seemingly innocuous thing depending on how afraid of spiders one might be or not. Extremely in and my case. case. So so, yeah. so maybe this was a very horrific song for you. <laughs> um some have argued that it's the first death growl. No, I had that thought. Absolutely. Yeah. They, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I know some people uh, would argue that it is. Yeah. Now, the story I'm going to tell why I picked these two bands is uh, The Who actually put out a song, I think it was maybe a year after Boris the Spider. I just like Boris the Spider more. <laughs> it's it, it's kind of middly in its way. John Entwistle, the bassist, actually wrote that song. One of the few not written by Pete Townsend and sung by Roger Daltrey. A lot of bassists writing songs here. It's, it's Maiden, very, very bass heavy. Yeah. Same thing with Maiden. <laughs> yeah. So um, they put out a track called I Can See for Miles, which if you listen to it now, I don't really listen to it as a song thinking, oh my God, this is so metal. This is definitely metal before metal. But in the time, uh, I think it was Townsend was in an interview bragging, we are the loudest band, we're the heaviest band, I can see for miles pushes the boundaries, we are the heavy band, you know, 1967, whatever. He was bragging about that. Yeah. Uh, well, there was another British invasion band out at the time, you might have heard of them, they're called the Beatles. Once or twice. They too had a bassist. <laughs> I, think, I think Haruki Murakami wrote about them. That's that's my introduction. They, he had this book called Norwegian Wood, from what I understand. It that came is from a Beatles song. That is a Beatles song. Oh, wow. That's funny. Uh, so, they have a bassist. His name is Paul McCartney. He hears these comments, and his response is, Hold on now. <laughs> You're loud. Fuck you. We're the fucking Beatles. <laughs> like, we're, you know... And not that the Beatles had done a lot of heavy work up to this point, but apparently Paul is just one of these guys that if you say it, he's going to bring it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so he comes back and writes Helter Skelter uh, for the White Album. And it is, for 1968, one of the heaviest, absolutely loudest, dirtiest. Absolutely. Almost... Like, I, I can imagine you playing that for somebody who's never heard of it before, and they might not guess it was the Beatles at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I would it's, definitely It's very feel different, that way. and I, it, was, it was just a direct response, so it's interesting how you were talking about how these people pushed each other in certain ways. And that's that's one of my favorite examples because, I mean, you know, Helter Skelter comes out and he's like, you're loud, I'm Paul, fuck you. <laughs> like, I just love that, you know, and... That's the sole reason it exists. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
it's a weird production. It's a longer jam than what's on the album, but they fade out in points and then fade back into the jamming, and there's just wailing, screaming guitars. There's so much passion in a lot of the Beatles music <laughs> that I think people, when you think of the Beatles, you think of being really tight songwriters and being very inventive and creative. Yeah. But I think one of their best qualities is just the passion in yeah. a lot of their music, even playing old pop standard kind of stuff. Sure. In the earlier Beatles period, what set them apart was just the the raw emotion that they tried to put into it, mm -hmm. um, which again is is kind of a bluesy thing to do, and it's certainly a metal thing to do. Yeah, it's very um, spirited, extremely. You know, that's where you get a song like Helter Skelter. That's spirited. He's he's oh competition. Okay, oh yeah. you're the loudest. Fuck you. We're so the Beatles. This like. is the Metallica Meg Megadeth thing. Yeah, yeah. We got and... James Hetfield in <laughs> in Townsend, and then you. Got Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's just straight, straight uh, uh, comparison there to be made between Metallica and Megadeth yeah. and The Who and The Beatles. Yeah. I think we've just discovered something today. I like that. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I've seen uh, McCartney live twice, and he's played the song both times, and he still plays it the same way. Like, it's still loud and dirty and nasty, and it's... You're singing about a, a famous slide in England. Yeah. Literally a slide is a what slide. you're singing about. So it's not a race war like Charles Manson? The, no. Sorry. <laughs> it's not the race war. Um, but you can see what kind of things it, it, it brought out. Different things in people. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Uh, it, it's really hard to express like how heavy that was for 1968. Even compared to some of these Cream tracks. You know, it was just... You don't fuck with Paul McCartney, I guess. Um, you <laughs> don't, don't push his buttons. And he's definitely not somebody that is really ever going to come up in a greater metal conversation. Like, no. <laughs> Paul McCartney has silly love songs, piano ballads, but he has his moments. He was an artist, still is an artist, that um, is not afraid to embrace his weird <laughs> from time to time. And That's he has done something. a lot of weird stuff. So for every, you know, kind of corny little ballady pop song that he sings you know he can dig out a helter skelter and and just go what the fuck <laughs> or literally everything off of the album ram uh, yeah right yeah absolutely um another one i picked I, I picked pink floyd one of these days this is another example of a group that i would never think of in a greater metal conversation but they were pulling from a lot of different areas and trying a lot of different stuff. And, and you have a few cuts in their earlier years. I don't know if you're very familiar with the, uh, with their discography or not. Uh, just just sort of pieces here and there. It's, it's weird. They're one of those bands where, like, everything I've heard by them I've enjoyed. But for whatever reason, I just never did a deep dive on them. Uh, yeah. But this, this might have inspired me to do that because it... You're right. Like they pull on so many different mm -hmm. things. I'm I'm actually really curious. To Even hear. just from that one album, that's from 1971's Metal, which is M E D D L E, not heavy metal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the album is called Metal. Uh, interestingly enough, um, they have a couple tracks even before that. I'm thinking of like the Nile song, where like Gilmore is just belting from his throat, deep in his throat, the just these lyrics uh, over crashing loud instruments. Um, very, very different from some of the, you know, if you only really know surfacey Pink Floyd stuff, mm -hmm. you might not know that they have those moments. But um, there are parts of these albums you gave me that when I was listening, I kept thinking of one of these days. You know, it has this long opening of, it's actually double bass. It's two people playing the bass. 
same you know bass notes on top of each other double That's track so sick yeah uh roger waters is the bassist but gilmore was also playing the bass there and i guess on for like two or three minutes and it's the slow build up which they do on a lot of their tracks but this one's definitely a lot more ominous sounding <laughs> with that series sure. uh the one lyric in the song is one of these days i'm going to cut you into little pieces which is um pretty metal. said by the drummer I guess if you're gonna have one lyric in your proto metal song, that that's one that's, pick out. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a good one. That'll qualify. And then uh, once that line is uttered in a very modulated voice, it's a very produced voice. It's not a regular speaking voice. It sounds demonic or something. And then all the instruments just come crashing in, and and it's just a very tight, very groovy, but kind of fast and heavy song and i thought this is this is where you're starting to see some of that virtuosity of the creams and and that and the zeppelins being put into more of a structured um songwriting um even though it's an instrumental it doesn't sound like there's a lot of improvisation on it yeah <laughs> it sounds very planned out and very well written as a lot of pink floyd's epics would be um they, they are kind of note perfect in a way. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of experimentation if you see these songs live outside of maybe what Gilmore does on solos. Um, because it, it's it's just, it's very in, uh, deliberately composed. <laughs> yeah. So you're starting to see um, prog elements. I, don't, I wouldn't call Pink Floyd an out and out prog rock fan. I'm actually not a prog rock fan. And Floyd is about as close as I get to it. <laughs> yeah, that's the same. Until maybe Power Slave, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, but uh, they definitely have those progier elements, which to me, when I say that, that's what I'm meaning, is they're taking that instrumentation and making it more purposeful throughout the entire track. Um, I just love that track. It just, it, I just think it kicks ass. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's all you need. Yep. So on to David Bowie. Uh, the Man Who Sold the World, 1970. This is his third solo album. That was bold of him to cover a Nirvana song, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He kind of put, uh, they kind of put Bowie on. <laughs> 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 Which I did know. Uh, I did know the Nirvana song first. The same. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember when that came out as a single. and um, My growing up on Bowie... I was born in 1980. I watched MTV through the 80s. That was my Bowie. It was Let's Dance. It was China Girl. It was Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going into the 90s, that was one of the songs I heard. I was like, oh, that's a Bowie song. And it, like, I got to get more into older Bowie, which of course, if all you knew was 80s Bowie, and then you go back and listen to 70s Bowie, it's, <laughs> it is an experience. Oh, yeah. Because, man, um, I don't think of him as a particularly metal artist. <laughs> Um, he's definitely uh, a lot of different things. He was known as a chameleon. He did. A, 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 he was more kind of folky before this album. Um, very English. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. Not dance hall, but like just very Britishy, very posh, very. Uh, I don't know. But definitely also comes out in his affect. I know what you mean. Absolutely. Um, this one, he kind of is picking up on some of those. Prog elements. Uh, some of the aspects he's bringing with this album is a lot of theatricality. Yes. Um, <clears throat> which he would only build upon and become more and more known for. If he was ever consistent with anything musically, it's that. It's, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The presentation. 
-hmm. It's the presentation of the music, the image, the cover art. I mean, 1970, here's a man with long blonde hair and a dress yep. on an album cover. I think he's like one of the first uh, like major artists like, a, like on an actual label who went on stage in a dress. <laughs> in rock and roll history or pop music. A nice tribute history. to Young Thug, really. It's a, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll Bowie was influenced later. by a lot of people over the years. <laughs> Apparently. But uh, yeah, so so really that presentation, um, very subversive, very intentionally subversive imagery you've got going on here. Um, of course, going from this into 71, 72, 73, Bowie's going to become more and more of a glam rock artist. And then quickly moving away from that. <laughs> but uh, most people associate him with the glam rock period of Ziggy Stardust, uh, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. And See, that, that's the thing. When, you, when I saw Bowie, because I like Bowie. You've, you've given me so many Bowie albums over the years. Back when we worked together, you know, I remember you burning a lot of Bowie albums <laughs> for me and, and me loving them. I'm but, a big Bowie nut, yes. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> um, but, you know, when, it, when I saw Bowie pop up when you were giving me these albums, I really was surprised it wasn't Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, um, the one I picked, The Man Who Sold the World, is actually considered by a lot of people to be a proto-metal, or at least as close as he would get to it as an album. It's less glam than mm -hmm. Ziggy Stardust. Uh, it you, definitely you, felt stripped down in, in a way. Yes, and you see that going there. This is the first incarnation on this album of the Spiders from Mars. Most notably, Mick Ronson, the guitarist. Which, you know, for classic rock people, talk about your all-time greatest frontman and lead guitar combinations. What David Bowie and Mick Ronson would go on to do from here, that would be Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane. Just classic, classic stuff. Mick Ronson's an amazing, very versatile guitarist. But on here, you're not getting so much of the glam, but the theatricality is ramping up. He is on his way to that. And you can definitely, if you know his greater... Um, timeline if you will discography you can hear how it's ramping up to that but on here um it is a little bit more stripped back it is a little bit harder and dirtier whereas uh, ziggy stardust is a little bit more clean in production mm -hmm. a little bit more deliberate and and catchy in melodies and that kind of thing uh, not in a bad way um i prefer that album but um I think this is where you get a lot of influence into harder rock genres that would come to be um, besides glam, um, including metal, industrial, gothic type stuff. You know, you're seeing a lot of building blocks of what would come through in the 70s and 80s. There's a um, romance to this album. That Absolutely. I can hear you talking with the goth. There's a real romance with this album. Mm -hmm. And yet, I, when I was listening to this, one of the things that immediately popped in my head, it felt very driven. You know, it, it didn't feel like they were lingering much on this album. Mm -hmm. it, it really felt like there was a push, especially in the rhythm section, to kind of move things along yeah. in, an, you know, a little bit more of a deliberate way than than you would hear on some of the, the 60s albums that, yeah, that's fair. that we would be for talking sure. about. For sure. Um, yeah, being, being the uh, sort of prototype for the, the Spiders from Mars, I can't remember which one it is, but only one of the members is not present here. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they're very much already coming together as a band. This is easily Bowie's best album to date. I I can't really listen to his first album. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, for, for my all-time favorite artists uh, who 
have a debut I'm not crazy about like him and Bob Dylan are like side by side in that way um, but would grow very quickly from that and um, the second album of course has Space Oddity but uh, it's it's not the most consistent album uh, this is where I feel like uh, he had a focus for the whole project and it feels like it this is like you said it's very deliberate and all all of its ways, um, whereas the, the one that preceded it was a little bit more grab baggy. Sure. Um, another thing I like about this album, as far as this greater conversation is concerned, is the lyrical themes. Um, Bowie, you know, he's a great lyricist, you know, for a guy who has a lot of well-known kind of, if you want to say more commercial hits, um, has never much written lyrics <laughs> to that effect. Yeah. Um, Width of a Circle was this long epic song starting off the album. He's talking about a sexual affair with a male divinity in hell. That is extraordinarily metal. Like that's pretty much what that song is about. It's yeah. Like eight minutes long. The divinity is never defined to, to the best, uh, from what I can tell. God, devil. I don't know, but it's a wild <laughs> ride. It's a very interesting song. Um, it goes into all of the Mad Men, which might be my favorite song on the album. Uh, this is a guy in a mental hospital. Uh, the narrator of the song is in a mental hospital. And if, if I'm reading it right, he may be sane and maybe uh, okay to release, but he's doesn't want to be he's almost feigning madness <laughs> yeah. in order to stay because what he's going to go out to in the real world is infinitely worse the harsh and cold world of the outside mm -hmm. he's almost like comfortable <laughs> yeah. in this asylum um i think is a very interesting concept um the the line going into the chorus i'd rather stay here with all the madmen than perish with the sad men roaming free. You know, you would, and it also goes to a to a greater idea that madness is a construct or a misunderstanding. Like we're all mad, <laughs> we're all insane in our own ways, we're all sane in our own ways, whatever. Which became sort of a, a fixation for a lot of metal bands, actually thematically. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Metallica wrote about that quite a bit. Sure. Um, Maiden, Peace of Mind. That was kind of the the theme of the album in some ways. Um, so yeah, no, that's go back on that. Thing. That's my <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I hadn't considered that, but that is something that I think all three of these albums to one extent or another, uh, especially this and the next one that we'll talk about, uh, thematically pretty metal. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. And, and that's, that's another thing that I've talked about on the show a lot is that, what impresses me the most in music, um, I'm a huge Opeth fan, you know, I'm a huge Mastodon fan, uh, to get into the more heavy side of things, obviously, but, like, why I like them so much is because they seize upon a concept, uh, mm -hmm. and that that's the crux of their album. Whether it's a, a real concept album, quote-unquote, sure. or not, they really, feel, like, grab onto a theme, they grab onto a feeling Which or something. Which is very 
much a David Bowie thing to do. Because, uh, yeah, he's big on concepts. I mean, Ziggy Stardust is pretty much a concept album. Mm -hmm. This extraterrestrial come to Earth, become a rock star, only to find out that, you know, the world's going to end in, within five years and, and kind of... I don't know. It's a kind of a loose concept, but it plays throughout the album, and he definitely likes to explore um, those kind of themes. And this song in particular, madness is a big thing for him. His uh, brother, maybe half brother, his name Terry, was um, in an asylum for many years, mm. and if I'm not mistaken, died. And I, I think he's died. Uh, so this is a very close to home subject for him too. He's he's thinking about his own brother and uh, being in this place, and and that's where he's getting a lot of the ideas of what is that like? What does that feel like when you're in there? Do you feel like you're sane? Do you feel like everyone's insane? Do you, you know? Would you be scared to come out? Would you know and and face the world? Was it going to drive you back insane? Um, a lot of blurred lines in there. A lot of you know very interesting questions being asked. I think uh, that that pops up a few times in Bowie's discography uh, because it is a close to home subject for him. So I think uh, that's just a great song for me um, to explore those. I, I like the song structure anyway. I just think it's a great song. Yeah, it was one of my favorites on the album. But yeah, yeah uh, but for sure. Yeah, the more you read into the lyrics, it's like, damn, dude, <laughs> this is a, it's dark. There's a lot of dark elements to this album. A lot of yeah. dark themes. Um, Running Gun Blues has a it's about a, a soldier, I guess presumably in Vietnam, this is during Vietnam, flipping out in a murderous rage and and whether he's still in the war or when he comes home from war, just killing people because he's just he's flipped out. He's he's been turned into this killing machine, whatever. Um, it's very interesting. I know, you know, going back to like Power Slave, there's talks of, of war and, and government control, you know, all that kind of stuff. You get more of that on those those early Bruce Dickinson albums. Really, all of Bruce Dickinson's albums with Maiden, you get pieces of that. So yeah. I'm glad you brought attention to that. Yeah, so, you know, there's another way. That, so a lot of this Bowie, you know, aside from the prog year elements, it, it really is the themes that, that kind of drew me back to it. And when I've always heard this is proto-metal, uh, this is not an album I've gone back to as much in Bowie's discography until recently. Um, I like it. I think it's great. Um, but... I just like other Bowie stuff a lot more. This was probably the deepest I've I've gone into it lyrically, and um, it it helps me understand even more why this is considered one of the pre-metal albums. It's like that's where a lot of that is. When people say that, they're talking about lyrically the the concepts, the themes. And yeah, I hadn't considered that actually. Yeah. Savior Machine is a dystopian sci-fi thing where um, you know this. Uh, savior machine is supposed to save us all. It makes our decisions for us. It runs our life for us. Makes everything easier. Streamlines everything. But then it flips out on itself. The AI flips out, and you know it. It, it turns into the very thing it's supposed to. You know, another pretty British concept. I mean, earlier we talked about, about the Doomsday Machine in, in one of those songs. So yeah, and, and that consistent almost. Like really constant theme in Judas Priest's music, yeah, yeah. That's why I was saying, thinking like that's that's a pretty British concept, apparently. So that's another example of where I'm listening to the album now, going, okay, yeah, certainly in form, certainly in instrumentation. I've always gotten that part of it, uh, though there was still a long way to go. This is, I think, the same year Black Sabbath's first album came out. Uh, I think this was '71. 
this one I think this this one's seventy one. The Bowie is seventy. Oh, is it? Okay, uh, then yeah, same year. Same so year. Same year. Two seven, it doesn't. Actually. It doesn't sound like Black Sabbath specifically, but it is heavier. It, it does have that kind of sound, but it, it really is more getting into the lyrics. Where I'm like, okay, yeah, that's what <laughs> this is where the proto metal comes from. This is what we're really talking about. And yeah, that has made this a very fun album to go back and kind of discover um, a few of the deeper cuts that I wasn't as familiar with, and kind of draw that parallel was was very fascinating <laughs> for sure because even me like th that was one of the first albums i thought of when you told me to pick some was well what do i know <laughs> i know david bowie i know he's considered to have one of the sort of earlier pre-metal albums proto-metal albums but what can i discuss about it to really drive that point home but the more i looked into the lyrics that was the answer <laughs> yeah so and that and the theatricality which came out and and really and yeah i i really was hoping to hear more from you about the the next album there was queen 2 just this operatic uh yes. soaring you know and, and when i heard this to me we, we keep going back to maiden but when i heard this i really felt it felt to me like a maiden album not sounded really felt right so this is, uh, this is another instance, I think, if you're not a big Queen fan, but you know Queen, i.e., you know, the greatest hits, <laughs> you know Bohemian Rhapsody and another one, but you know, you know who Queen is, but you've never really gone into it. The first two to three Queen albums, kind of like the first two to three Bowie albums, are not really what you would expect to hear when you go back to them, per se. It's definitely Queen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can tell it's Queen. There's a lot of the aspects to their, their sound that would continue through. But it is a little bit more proggier. Um, we're, we're getting back to, to sort of the, the Pink Floyd style of compo uh, composing of the time. Um, but a lot more glam. So this is, this is definitely coming post-Bowie. <laughs> uh, post... Um, Ziggy Stardust, post all that, post uh, T-Rex, Mark Bolin, you know, the glamier side, Mott the Hoople, all that stuff. But what they're doing is they're writing longer songs, kind of more epic stuff. They're they're including a lot of fantasy into their lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of Victorian language, like, uh, on some of these songs. This album in particular, Queen 2, so it's their second, um, is split into two sides. Uh, of course, side A and side B. It's a record. But the side A is the white side and was primarily written by the guitarist Brian May. And um, the last song is written and sung by the drummer. Uh, but mostly it's sung by Freddie, but written by Brian. And um, you get some of that on these tracks. Really what I was drawn to as far as this conversation goes was side two, the black side, which is entirely written by Freddie Mercury. And, like, right off the bat, you're beginning with being invited into an ochre battle. <laughs> yeah, that, that hit me, like, just looking at the track list. I was like, ah, okay, I see what you're going for here. Yeah, you're going right into an ochre battle. And more than on the first side, even, you're getting a lot of uh, production tricks. Well, Queen, Queen was bringing a lot more out of what they could do in the studio mm -hmm. on these productions. Um, for that time, that was big, and the different tricks in the production and engineering um ogre battle begins with the outro being played backwards <laughs> you know so you're kind of thrown off right away and then you're, you're and then you're in an ogre battle uh, 
um, on, you know, through the, the following tracks, like Fairy Feller's Masterstroke and all these, you're getting a lot of paneling effects going from left to right. Things are zipping past you, especially if you're listening to it in headphones. You're really getting into headphone music here. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and of course, a trademark of Queen, you're getting a lot of overdub vocals, a lot of overdub guitar parts. Uh, the sound's just getting bigger and grander, but very uh, compositionally, you know, like, the, like what the band you picked would go on to do. Um, this is far from the cream noodling <laughs> sure. on, you know, for 20 minutes on stage, you're getting very epic songs, some with multiple parts. Of course, you know, they would go on to do Bohemian Rhapsody. It's one of the best known songs as far as tracks with multiple chambers, if you will. Sure. Uh, very different, uh, sections. And that's come up a lot too. Um, you know, I already mentioned Opeth and, and Mastodon, how, you know, I think it was uh, episode two, I picked Crack the Sky by Mastodon, and I picked Blackwater Park by Opeth, and it's kind of crazy to consider it, but I do hear a lot of Queen in, in those albums mm -hmm. in that way, in using the studio tricks that they have available to them. Less so with, with the Opeth and Mastodon, they're not as interested in getting that modulated necessarily, but mm -hmm. um, they're bringing the tricks of the studio there to heighten what they want, and they're bringing these multiple chambers in the songs um, where like my guest, uh, for that show, Marcus said that he listened to Opeth the first time listened to Opeth. And he was like, I, I didn't realize it until I actually looked at the track list where I thought I heard four songs and it was the same song. <laughs> yeah. It, it was still the same song because they, they, they had a story to tell. They had a place right. they wanted to take you. Yes, uh, and I think journey. Queen is one of those bands that they want to take you somewhere. Absolutely. Um, and the black side definitely does. <laughs> Uh, March of the Black Queen is is certainly uh, almost an early version compositionally of Bohemian Rhapsody in that multi-sections. Um, just that one track, you're going on a whole ride. Mm -hmm. And then you throw it into the middle of the, the whole side or the whole album. Um, yeah, you're you're on an adventure. <laughs> Absolutely. It is at least the feeling you get. I mean, if you're willing to go on it musically, and if you want to go on it lyrically, <laughs> you know, if you really want to go on that ride, um, they take you there. And uh, so that's a lot of what I was hearing and what you were giving me that kind of led me back to these things. I think Queen, in their earliest years, definitely, um, when I'm hearing that, that, that's what's speaking to me. And when I'm listening to this Priest album and this Maiden album, it's like, oh, I've heard something similar to this, you know? Yeah. It's very grand, it's very theatrical. You've got Freddie Mercury, obviously the iconic voice. Um, with the band you gave me, we're talking about iconic voices. If I'm not mistaken, all three of these guys are considered very... Oh yeah, the, the albums I gave you... Iconic but, vocalists yeah, they, for, that, they for metal. True icons in that sense. And also, I will point this out, that you know, pretty much all six of the albums we've talked about here, live performance is a huge part of what built their legend. Absolutely. And and I think that that's also key to the metal experience is how well can you translate this to a live performance? Because right. I mentioned that I'm a big death metal fan and I've always told people you can't understand death metal really until you've been there. Mm -hmm. Until you've been to the show right. and you felt the bass rattle in your chest <laughs> and you felt the, the heat and the 
fucking energy. It's a whole experience. Yeah, it is an experiment experience. There are bands that I've heard, and it's not just death metal, but there are heavy bands that I've heard where like I'll hear the studio version and I'm like, yeah, this is all right, whatever. It's it's cool. And then I go see them live and I'm like, ah, I get it. Now. It really opens up. <laughs> I get it. You know. Um, so that's how it is with your creams, and we mentioned Zeppelin and and a lot oh, of these bands that. Once you yeah, see and line, I mean, different. right up there with somebody like the Zeppelin Queen is one of those bands that I'm, you know, damn, I couldn't see them live. Damn, Absolutely. I couldn't see Freddie Mercury live. I mean, I guess you could go see Queen live, well, yeah. but you're you're not getting Freddie Mercury, and no. you're not getting John Deacon. I would want to hear those four together. But yeah, that that's a big thing, and of course Bowie as well is a, is a very um, respected vocalist in his own right. But Freddie Mercury is about almost as top as you can get up there with Robert Plant. Oh yeah, for classic rock vocalist. And it's not just his range, which is vast and powerful. Yes. But it is the personality. It is the, the theatricality. And incredible it. charisma. Incredible charisma. Um, you've got uh, vocalists all throughout the band. Um, I don't know how many people realize about Queen that all four of them write. Mm -hmm. And all four of them have had major hits mm -hmm. uh, that they've written for the band. Like, for instance, Another One Bites the Dust is... Not a surprise, but it's written by the bassist. Yeah. Not written by Freddie Mercury <laughs> or Brian May. And they have huge hits that the drummer wrote, you know. And uh, These were very accomplished musicians. These are very accomplished uh, songwriters. Um, the uh, Taylor, the drummer, he's got an incredible vocal range. Um, if you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody, those real high, let me go, like the real high ones, are actually sung by him. Oh, I, if, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought that was all Freddie Mercury. No. I thought all vocal tracks were no, Freddie that they laid over each it's other. It's their four voices, but each of them are on there like ten times. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's he got an incredibly high uh, voice as well. So, um, yeah, vocally, um, I was definitely reminded a lot of that. So that was a big thing for Queen was, was sort of the... The progier elements, <laughs> almost pre uh, uh, the the lyrics um, that you were talking about. Help me out here. The game that I never played. Oh God! What? Oh no! I'm, you're losing Dungeons me and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Sorry, I totally no. blanked out. Yes. Dungeons and Dragons. You're hearing those type of very fantastical lyrics uh, uh, throughout this album, uh, Queen Two, and. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the track Stone Cold Crazy off of Absolutely. Queen's third album. That's the one that... It, that practically yeah. <laughs> ushered in thrash metal. Yeah, that's the one I've always heard is the proto one. Yeah, yeah. And, and I actually listened to that album for this, and I felt like even with that song, I just could make a stronger case with Queen 2 than I could with Sheer Heart Attack, which is an excellent album. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, and, I and you hear a lot of the, the first two Queen albums in it, but you also hear a lot of what you know, Killer Queens on that album, you hear a lot of what they were becoming. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas this one's still kind of purely in that, that earlier um, extended tracks, uh, fantastical lyrics, weird languages that he's using, like Victoria, not that Victorian's a weird language, but just odd to use in 70s lyrics. Anachronistic. Anachronistic, thank yes. you. So uh, that's all That's all there, and, and I'm here for it. I'm a big Freddie Mercury fan, so... Um, I think when I go into these albums and listen to a Rob Halford or a, or a Bruce Dickinson, 
I get it because a lot of what I appreciate about a, a frontman and a vocalist like Freddie Mercury is very present there in spirit. Absolutely, yeah. That's very the, much so. That was what I took away from the Queen album um, as, as how it fits here. Um, now I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up shortly, but there was sure. one other song that you picked for this, uh, and it was Crazy on You by, by Heart. Now i got to tell you... That's just been on my, like, Spotify auto-generates playlists for you, <laughs> and one of them is your on-repeat playlist, uh, and that's, like, right at the top. I don't know what it is, but I've been jamming some heart lately, so when I saw that, I got really excited. Really? Oh, dude, I fucking love this song. And I almost I almost picked Barracuda. For obvious reasons. That, yeah, a little bit more of an obvious pick was why I didn't, but... Um... The heart one was kind of uh, like a fun bonus pick for me. Uh, yeah. I did listen to the first couple heart albums and see if I can make a great case for the albums in full. And I probably could have to a degree. Um, but there was a lot more kind of acoustic-y, slow songs throughout the album. Um, crazy For You, uh, Crazy On You, <laughs> is one of my favorite songs by them for sure. And it just it starts acoustic. It just builds on that acoustic guitar, and then, I don't know, like a minute in, the, all the, the electric guitars and drums crash in. One reason I, my brain went to heart, and this is when I was first listening to the ones you gave me and thinking, okay, what do I know that I'm hearing bits of here? This is like pure vocal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm listening to these guys sing, these three guys you gave me sing. And I'm like, they sound like Ann Wilson. <laughs> I'm like, this is, and and I get that, you know, she's often considered the the female Robert Plant of the 70s vocally for a reason. So I could have gone obvious as well and picked a Led Zeppelin song. But man, when I hear the way she's singing those verses and then just starts belting. Over the, the top of the riffs. Too. On top yeah. of the riffs. And I think the third time the chorus comes in, she's even multi-tracked. Like, it's a few different mm -hmm. lines of hers on top of each other. And it's just like this epic sounding. She's just got one of the most incredible voices for me as a singer. Um, and when I'm listening to, like, a Bruce Dickinson, I'm like, that's that kind of singing, you know? It really is. It's that high register. Again, over <laughs> top of the riffs is what it, it did for me. It wasn't. Yeah. They weren't. It almost they almost weren't even complimenting each other. It was like this this like duel between the vocals yes. and the riffs that I think you get like dueling is something you hear a lot when you talk about like Iron Maiden, uh, especially yeah, yeah. with the guitars. Uh -huh. um, but I think that is another thing that I felt here was that these were these this incredible vocal performance, this incredible guitar performance, and they were just like. I feel I feel like and I, I could come up with a with a few other examples of this, but uh, these are great examples and why Pit Heart I think is a great example. When you have the right kind of vocalist for for this type of music, the vocals are almost an instrument in a, of themselves. One hundred percent. It's it's like you said, you could have dual guitar attacks or you could have a guitar vocal attack and. And that's you know, a metal thing, man. That is a metal yeah, thing. That's, absolutely. You can hear that in every single subgenre. You hear that in death metal, obviously, because sure. you know they're growling. You don't even know what they're saying most of the time. Right. Um, you hear that with like new metal, even like Corn and Slipknot and all them. Like, sure. That is a very common theme: is using the voice uh, to communicate sonically and not, you know, verbally right. in a way. 
So yeah, I I, yeah, I think that's I get that a lot clear. from her, uh, from Ann Wilson and Freddie Mercury. You know, I think these are vocalists that you could say that you know, I mean, they're great singers, but they have almost this operatic kind mm -hmm. of kind of sense to them, and certainly uh, they do. You know, as far as the range, but you know what they're bringing to the songs with that voice. You know, aside from the lyrics. You know, just what they're bringing uh, vocally is is definitely an instrumentation of itself. And of course, the voice is an instrument, but here's where you're really hearing it used well. And that's what I've kind of figured about metal in a lot of ways, just from the little I know, is how important that element is to it. You don't just want someone who can sing. Right. You want somebody who can bring the right sound yes. vocally to what the band is doing. Absolutely. It's not about, it's not even about how good you are at singing. It's right. about what do you bring yeah. to the table. Exactly. Um, to take the, take somebody there. Which every kind of music I listen to, that's, that's an important thing in vocalization for me. I don't want to listen to American Idol perfect singers. I want to hear singers with personality. I want to hear singers with soul in their voice, with passion, you yep. know, I think that's why we both... I'm a Bob Dylan fan. Bob Dylan, know, Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that kind of thing. I, I, I want to hear a person in the voice and not just perfect notes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's about all we got time for today. Um, Greg, did you want to leave me with any homework or are you going to let me do my own thing on the next episode? You got anything in mind? That... I don't. No, no. no? Okay. Oh, I wasn't prepared for that. Oh, that's all right. I just wanted to put you on the spot for it, you know? <laughs> um, but that's cool. That's cool. Uh, tomorrow can be, a, or tomorrow, next week can be a pretty interesting episode. I might even uh, go down a bit of a rabbit hole and, and take on a whole discography. Don't hold me to it, dear listener, but you may hear me take on an entire discography. Uh, awesome. And I'm, I'm considering it's either going to be the first six Sabbath albums or it's going to be uh, the Every Time I Die discography because they are my favorite metal band. Um, but crap, I said that on the recording, which means I got to do it. I just realized how much work that's going to be, but it's fine. I'm going to power through it. <laughs> that's all right. Um, Greg, thanks for coming on, man. Absolutely. I, I thanks think, for uh, having me. This is a pleasure. I think uh, the whole I, week, the whole week, two weeks, whatever, I've had these albums. Uh, this has been fun. This was a fun uh, discovery. Well, then we might we might have you on again. I think it would be fun to maybe take you outside of your comfort zone uh, oh. in the next time. So maybe we'll okay. we'll think about different ways to to push the boundaries then, because that's what we uh, that's what I like to do. That's the whole point behind liking metal in the first place. Um, but anyway, dear listener, thank you for joining. Um, you know, as always, keep the conversation going. Uh, if you want, you can join me on Twitter uh, at Lake Dragging. Greg, you are also on Twitter, from what I understand. I am. Um, and so, you know, we'll I will be sure to tag him. You can tell him if his picks suck. You can tell him if they're <laughs> great. Um, but either way, the conversations, the community, that's what it's all about. So thank you for joining us, and we will see you again next week.